Welcome to the Soulful CXO, where we discuss leadership principles, core values, health, wellness, and resiliency. I'm Dr. Rebecca Wynn, the founder and the host of the show. Do you have a topic or guest you would like to be featured on the show? Would you like to be a sponsor? Please reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at Rebecca at SoulfulCXO.com. Please go to our partner, Cybersecurity Tribe, for weekly show recaps and other resources. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Now sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Soulful CXO. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Wynn, and we are pleased to have with us today, Ryan Kelmer. Ryan has over 20 years experience in the information security industry. He currently leads cybersecurity strategy for Proofpoint and is sought out expert for leadership and commentary on breaches and best practices. His global team of security experts ensures that Proofpoint's customers have consistent insight into the attacks that target people and the best defenses they can implement to mitigate them. Previously, he served as Chief Product Officer for Watchdog, leading the development and pioneering data-centric security solutions through the company's acquisitions. He ran solutions across HP's portfolio of security products, was Director of Product Strategy at ArcSight, held a variety of positions at VeriSign, including EMEA Regional Manager and Senior Product Manager. Early in his career, Brian was a security practitioner, helping build many leading security organizations and security operations centers around the world. Throughout his career, he provides cybersecurity counsel to global government delegations, including Jordan, North Macedonia, Peru, Spain, and as board member and cybersecurity technical board. He's a good source for breaking news, including Sky News, CBS This Morning, BBC. CBC, Forbes, Fortune, NBC, Today, Wired, Box, Economist, and many, many, many more. He's won numerous, numerous awards, including this year's 2021 Cybersecurity Strategy of the Year. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thrilled to be here, Rebecca. And I'm just thinking I really need to edit my bio down. I apologize for making you read all that. <laughs> that oh, no worries. And I, I added some. You're just such a pioneer in, in the industry. You know, one of the things, Ryan, you just have such an interesting background. And I always like to, for people with backstory, people just think that we just kind of floated into the industry as it is today. But but you really started out with, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but Stanford started out in history, but you always liked to, to do cryptology and stuff like that. Tell people a little bit how you even got into this crazy field that we know today. Yeah, it was almost an accident. You're absolutely right. I was, I was an undergrad at Stanford kind of late 90s, early 2000s. And I was taking computer science. History has always been a passion of mine. And actually, it's a great way to think about actually information security in certain ways, which we might get to. But I actually started getting pulled into people who are just trying to figure out how to solve this problem. Some were my Stanford professors. Some of them actually went on to found companies. And then I just realized that the cybersecurity industry existed, but no one really knew what was going on, uh, certainly outside maybe the US government and maybe some Five Eyes governments. Everyone was just inventing it as they went along. So I actually decided I was fortunate enough to have lots of credit. So I decided to graduate early. I was 20 years old and I took my first job as a cybersecurity practitioner. And uh, was amazed that this is a field that a 20-year-old's ideas would be taken seriously because having put in some of the work doing the research, I think I knew as much about what was going on as anybody, <laughs> no matter what their age was at the time. So I do some questionable things like grow some very questionable early 2000s facial hair to look old enough to show up in some of those rooms. But 
in the end, it was something that uh, I grew to love. And it's been the only place I've ever worked from a sector perspective. And 22 years later, I'm still here. Well, that's great. You know, a lot of people today aren't even really sure what a cybersecurity strategist is and what is the day in the life of a cybersecurity strategist. What does your typical day, quote unquote, typical day even look like in, in your position? Yeah, really good question. So I spend probably about 50% of my time talking to your peers, chief security officers, more frequently than chief privacy officers these days. I think it is becoming a little more common to have a CISO and a CPO as the same person, although I'm not sure that anybody has enough hours in the day to actually pull some of that off, depending on the organization they work for. But yeah, I spend about half of my time figuring out kind of not only how we can take the products, technology, services that we develop at Proofpoint to help make CISOs' lives easier, but also really pride ourselves in being useful to the CISO community at large. So there's a lot of CISOs that are not our customers that want to know what's going on with Ematet. We probably have the best visibility on planet Earth in terms of what's going on with Ematet today. And so I've actually been sharing that with, uh, with lots of CISOs already today, where it might hit the news, actually it has hit the news, and they're going to be asked by their management, you know, what are we doing about this? Are we protected? What does it look like? So being sort of front and center with the CISO community and figuring out how they need to not only benefit from some of the information and insight that we have, but also how they can inform what we're building longer term is really the core of what I do. And from the perspective of you know, the technology side, you know, this is where strategy, I think, really does matter because you have people choosing to build cybersecurity technologies with all kinds of different backgrounds, which is generally a good thing. But we're at the point where we have, you know, depending on whose numbers you're looking at, 6,000, 7,000, 9,000 VC funded cybersecurity startups. And how are they all going to build useful technology that anybody can successfully consume and actually deploy and benefit from? So what I try and do is, you know, keep proof point and we are, you know, top five cybersecurity company in, in least revenue terms. I don't know how you evaluate size these days. And I try and keep us aligned to the things that are actually going to make a risk mitigation difference for the customers that we're privileged to serve. And that in our world largely revolves around protecting people, protecting the information they work with, and of course, making sure that all that is done in a compliant and private way as well. So that's what I spend the bulk of my time doing. I've got an organization about 150 people that kind of do a lot of the similar sorts of stuff to try and not only get that message out more broadly, but again, really meet the needs of the CISO community. No, that's great. And you and I have had numerous conversations on, you know, on a professional level as me and different CISO roles on that, which I've always appreciated. One of the things that's always a challenge is we just get bombarded today with so much information. That's great that it's available out there. I tell people that sometimes I feel like a Jackson Pollock, you know, painting just because I'm getting bombarded by so many things. And and you and your role, you have to synthesize it real quickly because you're speaking to people like me, you know, maybe five minutes later that we're going to be asking those questions. Yeah. How do you go about trying to even structure your day that you can try and have some sort of you know, flow, balance, things along those lines. Because I'll be honest with you, I have trouble doing it. I can't imagine how you must be doing it. Oh, yeah. Time management is a bear. So uh, also, it really gets complicated when you have a global team, as I do. So <laughs> what I end up doing is I have a chunk in the morning that's devoted to Europe, where I'll talk to a European CISO, one of my European team members. That's usually somewhere in the 7 to 8.30 a.m. range. Sometimes it flexes a little earlier, like a 6 if I 
if I have to do that, uh, if it's farther east in Europe or maybe the Middle East. And then break, have to get something like a workout in, eat breakfast, drop my kid off at school or one of them, and then get back into the meat of the day where I try and you know, not spend too much time on internal Zoom meetings, but that's sort of a necessary evil these days. And I try and mix up that between, again, talking to our customer CISOs, uh, people who might want to work with us, as well as you know my own teams trying to keep everything on track, that we're building the right technologies into the future, particularly informed by an issue I want to get to, which is what are the attackers actually exploiting? And I think one of the things that creates a huge amount of noise in cybersecurity is that there's always going to be a million ways to technically exploit things. That's not necessarily, though, going to ransomware your whole network. So it's actually an interesting filter mechanism to apply to kind of what the attackers are doing. So that's the other thing I always, always, always spend time doing is making sure I'm connected to our threat research team who are actually the boots on the ground, if you'll uh, forgive the analogy, in the active defense, seeing the campaigns that are running every day, how they work, and who they're targeting, which is also extremely interesting most of the time. And then uh, take a chunk of time in the afternoon, usually to actually try and get something done. No one has fun managing their email inbox. I wish SMTP as a protocol had died decades ago, but sadly it has not. And then, uh, and then I'll often have a, like I will today, uh, I'll talk to a, an Australian CISO at uh, about 4 p.m. my time and wrap up the day like that. It's, um, it's a little exhausting. You have to build in lots of ways to take breaks, go walk the dogs, maybe more than the, the dogs even want to go for a walk these days. But yeah, that's, that's how my days generally come together. But obviously things can throw monkey wrenches in that. And a lot of that is not necessarily controllable. You know, when Fin7 pivoted over to email and started actually attacking thousands of organizations, you kind of throw out your calendar and try and, you know, reschedule everything and, and give your EA a really rough time with it. But you know, ultimately, it is a matter of trying to preserve some flexibility and, and mental health and well-being while trying to do as much good as possible during the day. Now, thank you for sharing that. I, one of the things I've always been a proponent of this whole year and really looking back over a couple of years is my resiliency, my health has to matter. And if I'm not at my best health holistically, it's really hard to lead any organization I am or coming in as, as a consultant or an expert. So I'm glad that you're getting workouts in and you're watching your nutrition and, and you're taking even those what I call micro breaks. I, I tell people, even if you take a 30 seconds to do 30 second dips or 30 seconds to just stretch or walk down the stairs and back walk up outside. Yeah. Fresh yeah. air. <laughs> That's huge. You know, when you were, you were talking about just with ransomware and stuff like that, I looked at a couple of numbers um, real quickly, just because looking back when you started at Proofpoint, you know, I tell people things really haven't changed, right? We first had, we really had some data breaches and attacks and stuff like that. Really back in, in 1995, really started looking at them a lot more in 2005, 2006, really with the U.S. Veterans Affair that was in that 20, $26.5 million records, not million dollars, but records first were attacked. And that's when we really started seeing kind of ransomware. And then we've seen it kind of repeating. But I looked at some numbers right here last night, solely for you, which you probably have top of your head. When we looked at the cyber crime dollars generated in 2015, it was $3 trillion. When I looked about November 1st, it was going to be $6 trillion that they thought for 2021. And then 2025, about $10.5 trillion. And we keep seeing the same 
same type of style attacks, you know, logins, credentialing, you still use RDPs and things like that. What words of wisdom do you give, you know, people who are in the day-to-day trenches as CISOs, CTOs, and we're like, we're having the same battles with trying to get budget and getting people to change the way they do business. Yeah. That they keep doing the same bad stuff, you know, for the last, you know, 15, 20 years. What do we do? Yeah, it's it's definitely feeling like a hamster wheel to some extent, because a lot of the same techniques that were used for different purposes a long time ago are now used for things like ransomware, right? Before, you know, the only style of actor that was interested in getting domain admin was like an APT, right? Because they wanted to get in there and be undetectable and hide and siphon off information. Now that same domain admin exercise that we always used to model with penetration testers and to some extent red teams is kind of what ransomware actors are all about. And we have the same technologies underlying this that make this possible, where we have trust. Most of that we've focused on this idea around network trust. And even with everybody working from home, you know, VPN connections exist and there's network trust that is potentially exploitable. But the one that really matters for ransomware is actually domain trust, right? The ability to get to those administrative credentials, service principles, and all of the ways in which Active Directory work that makes it possible to go from one compromised account or one malware infection on one machine to a domain-wide incident, which is what makes ransomware so problematic. I think you mentioned kind of the evolution of the cybercrime business model, which is, again, going back to uh, my pre-election towards history, I think something's really interesting to understand. You know, Ransomware does technically go back to 1987 and the AIDS Trojan, which was distributed by a Harvard-educated, mentally ill, <laughs> I believe he was a psychologist or maybe as an anthropologist. And he basically mailed out floppy disks that would, in fact, encrypt incredibly important files. Don't quote me on this, but it might have been like config.sys and autoexecbat and the things that used to matter in, in DOS world, for those of us old enough to remember that. And um, the way you would pay the ransom is that you'd actually send money to a PO box in Panama He said that any money gathered from doing this, and again, the floppy disks were spread in the mail and the ransom was paid via check to a PO box. You know, this shows you kind of what things were like in 1987 and why that didn't necessarily, you know, take off as a technique. Moving forward, you obviously did have the era of monetization changing for cybercrime. And you go back to like the late 90s, early 2000s, the first thing that was monetized was actually spam. Like the first early kingpins, and Brian Krebs has a wonderful book on this called Spam Nation, if you want to read it. Pharma spam through two main groups, one actually in Russia that Brian spends more time on, and one that is an absolutely wild story. A guy who's actually still in a supermax prison in New York, who basically became a pharma spam spam kingpin. I think he's South African, but he was operating in the Philippines. He just went full Bond villain. To like the whole like gold bars dealing with the you know Colombian cocaine trade, it just it went nuts. That's an amazing story too. There's a great book on that called The Mastermind. If you want to read that, I think Evan Ratliff is the author. But anyway, that was the monetization technique. You move forward from spam, you move into cardholder information and the big carding forums. That was why retail was in the crosshairs, and you had a ton of famous breaches there because all you had to do was get to this giant database full of cardholder information and. It was a gigantic pot of gold. And you could figure out how to take swaths of cardholder information and monetize that. And the dark web was a great place to do that in its earliest sorts of forms, which were really just forums. I don't even think you probably properly use the term dark web. We're not talking about Tor browsers or anything here. 
And then from there, you had banking Trojans also emerge as a parallel. But this is where I think things got interesting. Right around 2015, 2016, you have two things that happen. One, we still haven't solved the old issues, right? Like where there's domain trust, there's Active Directory, there's all kinds of things that there are great tools that already exist. Go back to Metasploit, Cobalt Strike, obviously right now, where any person with access to YouTube can learn how to use them, where you can go from one small compromise to a very big compromise with not too much hassle in between, at least in most organizations' networks. Obviously, we can throw up barriers, but that's where things tip. 2015, 2016, we see actually tidal waves of banking Trojans turn into tidal waves of ransomware. And the big thing that changes there is actually cryptocurrency, because all of them are trying to get the ransom paid in Bitcoin. That's the replacement for the 1987 AIDS Trojans send money to a PO box in Panama. If you can actually fill a Bitcoin wallet, all those issues around financial crime, they were actually very hard for the cybercrime underground to get around. Stolen credit cards and actually siphoned off bank accounts are not necessarily technically difficult. What's hard is actually getting your money. And so you had to have money meals, you had to actually pay a massive cost in order to get that money. Cryptocurrency solved all of those problems for the attackers and changed all of the math. Like if you think about those trillion dollar numbers you talked about, how they could have 100% growth rate in a few years, it's not possible without cryptocurrency. And so when we see all of the same tradecraft still working, And then that's effectively set of cybercrime actors that have been around for a while. You know, Fin7 went point of sale malware to ransomware this year. It's a perfect example. They were behind uh, Darkseid and Black Matter and all these things that we'd followed and thought of as different groups, right? Really, it was just Fin7. Those are the kind of the evolutions that end up mattering. And then a, a word to finally answer your question on the defender side. What do you do about something like this? But I want to actually throw out what feels like a little bit of a radical idea, but the CISO I know who sleeps the best at night has a very straightforward environment. Everything's in Google Workspace. He's not actually an Office 365 shop, which is interesting. Very hard to ransomware a Google Workspace environment, by the way, because the files are not files. They're actually blobs. So they have basically no corporate network. Everybody is just connecting to cloud applications. They have a few things that they develop themselves, but those basically run in their own private clouds and have very specific routes in and out. And that legacy infrastructure that is so problematic and is so connected to things like AD, which are an absolute beast to secure does not exist in his world. He does not have AD. And he gives up a lot of functionality that way. The IT team can manage that environment in uh, slightly different ways. They have tools like Jamf rather than just using SCOM and the classic Microsoft stack. But it is an order of magnitude more secure. And he's got hardware keys. I think he uses YubiKeys for most of his users. They're all familiar with it. They like it because it means they don't have passwords, which is a huge gain in terms of user productivity, especially when they're remote. And that's his world. SaaS applications, a few assets that live in the cloud, devices that actually in his world are mostly Macs, which also makes a huge difference. And this is the future. Like he's not you know, terrified at night that he's going to wake up to a 4 a.m. phone call about ransomware. This though is not the stack that most people are living with. So you have to figure out kind of, How do we get to that cloud future that we were promised without repeating a lot of the same mistakes that we made first time around? And we have this unfortunate predisposition, I would call it, in IT to just connect stuff. 
Like the old stuff just connects to the new stuff. I'm not going to just say, oh, that old stuff is actually toxic. How do I quarantine it off from my new stuff? And connecting things is absolutely the enemy of security because it creates complexity. And so the biggest piece of advice I would give to people is wherever you're at on your cloud journey, figure out what that secure future looks like because it's not a myth. It's not a unicorn. It really does exist. It's possible to get there. And then figure out how to take the toxic stuff that you will never be able to secure on-prem AD, whatever it happens to be, and figure out how to properly segment those things. And that's the other thing that I think is really, I, it would be a huge wasted opportunity if we don't go down this path. There's not going to be another move to the cloud that occurs in any of our lifetimes, nor do we think any of that is going to reverse and go back on-prem and we're all going to be building data centers again. It's just not going to happen. So with that, we have to use this move to the cloud to go as close to this new paradigm as we possibly can. And there's some really actually straightforward things that we can get there with, but we can't be just connecting the old to the new and contaminating everything that way and expect a better outcome than we've had in years past. And that's going to be politically hard, but there is a risk mitigation case to be made for it. The ROI is 100% there because every board in the world knows that ransomware can take their entire organization offline. And it would be a shame to waste this horrific spate of ransomware incidents and not actually end up with better security on the other end of it. Well, those are just excellent words of wisdom and great leadership points that we'll be able to, to apply to our everyday lives. Brian, our time is running a little bit short. How do people get a hold of you to, to have speaking engagements or, or writing things? And, and, how do the, and the other part of that question is, how do they find out more about Proofpoint and your white papers and, and all the stuff that you guys are doing really great on the company side? So you personally, as well as the company. Yeah, sure. So I, I'm easy to find. It's cybersecurity, right? So we're all on Twitter at our calendar is the is the handle. I don't do paid engagements, but I'm always happy to speak. I think I talked to, I actually talked to the entirety of at least six or seven very large organizations just during Cybersecurity Awareness Month when a lot of us do that sort of thing. And uh, always happy to chat about anything cybersecurity related or otherwise. And uh, on the Proofpoint side, uh, proofpoint.com is the obvious place to go. We have actually a phenomenal threat research hub that has all of the latest on what we're putting together. Actually, it's really interesting North Korean stuff for those who have that in their threat model coming out in the next couple of days. And uh, I'm sure we'll have some Emotet stuff up soon, obviously for existing customers, they have it in their dashboards, but we're furiously working on writing about that particular resurrection. And uh, Rebecca, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me on the podcast. Thank you, Brian. Brian, you are a soulful CXO. 